0: Good morning, Aberdeen. I'm moving a little slower than normal because uh, I rode my bike to Beulah yesterday and it hurt a little bit more than normal. So I'm kind of, you know, all right, Lord, help me with with my limp. No, um, man, good morning, everyone. My name is Scott Godinez. Uh, My family and I moved to Pueblo a few months ago to plant a church. We're starting a church on Lake Avenue, and I've had the great pleasure of knowing Pastor Greg for quite a while, and so it's an honor to get to be here preaching, and to be invited back two weeks in a row. You must be desperate. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I'm so happy. I love it. I love it. My family, we always feel super loved here, so thank you for giving us such a, a warm welcome here. Um, if you weren't here last week, I was started on part one of a message that kind of focuses around Jesus and this, this prayer he had on the night of the Last Supper, the night before he would be arrested and taken up through the whole passion through the crucifixion everything and it's this really really cool prayer in john 17 and uh, as i stated earlier he first begins to pray just for some things for himself that really benefit the believer as well and today we're going to look at a much lengthier passage where jesus prays specifically for his disciples um while jesus loves everyone and cares for everyone in this immediate context he knows what's coming And he's saying, I am praying for my disciples. I'm praying for these guys because of what's about to happen. He's fully aware of what Peter's going to do. He's fully aware of how the rest of the disciples are going to run and scatter whenever uh, Jesus is arrested. And so he wants to pray for them. And there's a lot of really cool truth for us in there as well. Now, this week during my study, I made a huge mistake. You see, whenever you're preparing to study the Bible and, and prepare a sermon, there's a couple, like, obvious rules, you know, like, try to teach it accurately. Don't, don't just make up stuff. But there's another one that if, you're, if you preach often, then you, you might be familiar with this mistake, and it's to listen to your favorite pastor preach on that same message before you do. Now, let me tell you why this is problematic for me. Uh, one of my favorite pastors is the late Adrian Rogers. And this guy is incredible. I, I, I respect him. I admire him. Um, if he was like a quarterback on the football field, I'm like the guy selling popcorn in the stands. Like his skill is just – he's wise. very – God is definitely on him. I, every time I listen to a message of his, it always like moves me to tears and teaches me something really cool. And I was like, I'll just listen to what he has to say about this. It's not – I've been studying it. he's not going to get me. And he totally had me crying. But I was like, gosh, doing it, this guy – I was like, man, God is so good, and I love having uh, someone just teach the Word like that. And so I honestly thought, I was like, man, I should just come up here and like just play a tape or something. Everyone listen to this guy's sermon. Um, but what, what God reminded me of was that this particular passage, and really so much of Scripture, is such an infinite reservoir of truth and application that we can never truly exhaust. And this morning, one of my goals is to bring you such joy and encourage you that you'll want to go back to this passage over and over because we're going to be just taking like a small peek over the edge of this canyon of knowledge and biblical truth this morning we could i I almost wish i could do you know once one verse a week kind of thing there's so much in it and so forgive me if i skip over your favorite part in this passage um we're going to look at some cool stuff um So, we're going to begin by reading our passage this morning. So, like I said, we'll be in John 17, and this time we're starting in verse 6. So, John 17, verse 6. If you haven't read this in a while, you've never read it before, it kind of like, it's just not the way we speak now. So, I'm going to read it a little bit slower to help us really have time to focus on what Jesus is saying. There's a little bit of some challenging language in here. So, John 17, verse 6. Jesus prays. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you have given. words you have given me is from you. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, just as I am not of the world. I keep, sorry, my, my mistake, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17 here Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So with that ending, you might be able to anticipate where we're going to be headed this morning, but there's a lot of things happening on the way there. So what we're going to do is we're going to first identify what exactly is Jesus praying for, right? Like, this, is, this is our Savior. This is our Lord. He's praying. We want to know what is Jesus' prayer request. What a cool thing. We want to know why he is praying for those things. And ultimately, we want to ask ourselves, well, now what? Like, what does that have to do with us, and what can that mean for us today? So our first point is really simple. Jesus asks for the disciples' protection. Jesus is asking for protection over the disciples. This is possibly one of the easiest requests to observe in Jesus' prayer. There's two places it'll come up. First, you'll see in verse 11, when Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Again, in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we have two instances in Jesus' prayer that show us Jesus' prayer for protection of his disciples. However, it's important for us to understand that Jesus uses this word keep and not necessarily just protect. It has this... Um, It's probably better translated as, like, um, to sustain an allegiance. So it's keep them, hold them, keep them continuing in the path that they're in. There is this sense of protection and kind of like an overwatch, like watching over them, but it really has this kind of sense of keeping the disciples in allegiance with God. Keep them. In its most basic form, Jesus is praying that God helps his disciples To be able to live the life of a believer. To be sustained by God's power. We see this happening through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we know that the Holy Spirit is God's power Enabling us to fulfill the life of the believer. We can't, earlier it was said this morning, I love it, it's such a good reminder. Nothing can happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. If anything makes sense to you at all this morning, it's not because of my charisma or any time I spent studying, it's because the power of God's Spirit is making it enlightening for you. We praise God for this. You might be asking, well, how exactly does the Holy Spirit help us to live life as a follower of Jesus? It's really simple, I love this verse out of Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Not only does the Holy Spirit pray for us, knows the right things to pray when we don't even know what to pray, when we may be incapable of praying, The Holy Spirit is constantly advocating for you. And there's a ton more lists of everything the Holy Spirit is doing. Brings conviction, gives you the words to speak, gives you insight, knowledge, awareness. The Holy Spirit is the full power of God. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have access to that power. There's something really empowering to me about that as well. But this leads us to another question. Why did Jesus think... We needed help living life as a believer. He even said, it's better for me to go than to stay. Like, you need the Holy Spirit. You, you really need me to go so you can have the Holy Spirit, which is kind of crazy to think because, personally, I feel like if I was walking down uh, northern or even just downtown, it would be nice to have Jesus with me. You know, like, hey, have you met my friend Jesus? Um, and Jesus says, it's better to have the Holy Spirit than for me to stay, which is kind of remarkable. You have more power with the Holy Spirit then, well, I shouldn't say that way. It's more advantageous to you to have the Holy Spirit than to simply just have Jesus walk in there with you. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, but I want to keep going. Here's the thing we need to know. Jesus understood that we would need protection from at least two key things. And here's a, a point for us to see this morning. Obedience to God will agitate the world. Obedience to God is going to agitate the world. This is challenging for at least two reasons. You see, one, we live in an environment, a society, that can sometimes be hostile to our beliefs. On the good side, they're usually just apathetic. They don't care. Um, But on the other side, they can actually be openly hostile. We're seeing this now more and more as big decisions get made in the government, and people get upset about things. The second reason this can be so challenging is that we have to be honest with ourselves. We each carry some amount of worldliness within our own hearts. If that were not true, then James would never have needed to warn us. In James 4, he, he says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you are a friend of the world, you're enemies with God. This is a bold Statement. This is one of those things that's okay to be like, what? The world in its sin is passing away, but the man who does the will of God endures forever. These are opposing things. Jesus is light and came into darkness. This isn't me trying to say the world is horrible. It's me trying to say Jesus is making a clear line. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. Jesus knew the disciples would be hated by the world for their teachings. I mean, clearly, Jesus must have taught some things that upset people so much, they tortured and crucified him. He wasn't a militant warrior. He was really not that different than the rest of us, trying to help people and teach. And he was crucified for it. The world wants little to do with your holiness and your devotion To a holy God. The same thing would happen to most of his disciples who would suffer martyrdom for their teachings and their beliefs. You see, when we try to live for our faith in any culture, and frankly, at any time in history, the sinful flesh will always become enraged. Having worked with teenagers and young adults, you know, you hear these things like, you know, how dare you say that Jesus is the only way for salvation? How dare you say that I can't move in with my girlfriend before we get married? All these rules, all these limitations. Your Bible is old, archaic, you're antiquated, you're narrow-minded, all these things. You see, outrage is, well, all the out, all the rage. <laughs> People can become so furious with any indication of someone expecting them to live in holiness and purity. And the reason's simple. If you say that there's a, a right, if you say there's such thing as holiness, that automatically means there's such thing as unholiness. If there's absolute good, there must be absolute evil. If there's right, there must be wrong. If you're with Jesus or you're not, Jesus draws a line in the sand, and this can be upsetting. We like to live in the gray and there are some things that are very gray and we have faith in God's word to guide us but this one's pretty clear. Your Jesus is the way. There is no other. Yet for the Christian are we not commanded to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy? It's a high calling. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That is a big ask. I think I'm just going to say this because this is not what I'm going to, but I think too often I hear this saying, nobody's perfect. And it feels like this excuse for Christians to settle for mediocrity. You know, I read my Bible once a week, nobody's perfect. Could you read it twice a week? I could, but you know, nobody's perfect. Step it up. Because here's the thing. How much of the world, that second challenge, how much of the world resides within our own hearts? How many Christians have built palaces for themselves on earth when the word of God teaches us to store our treasures in heaven. I once spoke with an atheist who was very polite, and he told me he was so shocked that Christians could could love Jesus and love heaven and all of its glory when he sees Christians buying the biggest, best, greatest stuff, hoarding up all these things. Churches are bigger than stadiums. And he's like, you, got, you have needs all over the world, and they're building up bigger and bigger buildings for what? I, if, if heaven's so great, why are you trying to store up so much pleasure for you right now in this temporary time? I was like, it's a valid argument. If, if heaven is really all that we believe it is, if being in the presence of God is truly as good as we say it is, why are we holding so tightly to all of the shiny things right now? We like to be comfortable. I once visited a church in a small town in um, northwestern Colorado, maybe 200 people total, maybe, maybe less, um, and I was supposed to preach there at one of the three churches. They didn't have many churches. And the pastor had told me that a few weeks ago, the church, for the first time in several years, had a VBS. There was enough kids, finally old enough, where they could actually have like, a bunch of kids in the VBS and organize everything said about almost like 40 kids showed up, which was nearly 100% of the whole town. (laughs) It was great. Well, apparently it was a huge hit. It went off so well. All the kids loved it. They came back every single day. And uh, the bad news is within two weeks, not a single kid came back to that church. What happened was that no one at this church of about 15 people, uh, no one at this church wanted kids there. This aging congregation felt that so many kids would ruin their church. Kids are messy, they're chaotic. Just look over at what my kids are doing. In fact, to make space for a kids' ministry in this small church when they had VBS, it would require reducing the amount of the square footage that was currently taken up by their food pantry that was so neatly organized and ran. It was the pride of this church. They had all these little, I saw it was beautiful. They had all these rows of cans and stuff. I don't know how much it was needed, but it was their most important thing. Friends, church, this place was never intended to be our paradise or like a holy vacation away from the discomfort of the world. If anything, this room, this building, this body of believers should function as a hospital for sinners it's going to be messy. There might be some blood. It's definitely going to be some tears. How would Aberdeen respond to having to replace all the carpet because water's splashing out too much from all the baptisms happening here? That's a good investment. How would Aberdeen respond to giving up some of the comforts and the organization and the quiet on a Sunday morning to make children and babies feel even more welcomed in service? What traditions or unspoken rules might be getting in the way of seeing our maximum potential for kingdom impact realized? What can we lay down at the feet of Jesus and say, you are greater? I love and praise to Jesus that he knows the struggles that we would face and the things that we would become distracted with in this life. I'm encouraged to know that he's praying for us and he gave to us, gives to us, the Holy Spirit to guide us in truth. These are tough things. I, I'm only 32, but I'm starting to see, like, the, I like having things my way. Um, we have a couple younger people now. So now when Spotify came out, I was a little upset with Spotify because I grew up getting to buy my CDs, and all of a sudden now I've got to pay a subscription for my music. And I was like, what's going on with this? I'm not paying for a subscription. I want to go buy my CD, so it's mine. Man, the world just keeps changing as you get older, and they don't seem to care my opinion very much. The challenge doesn't end here. You see, Jesus prayed that his disciples would not be taken out of the world, but instead would be kept from the evil one. Here's another point for us this morning. Christians serve the hard places. When Jesus says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, He's establishing a pretty simple concept regarding his disciples. Christians are going to stay in the world. They're going to serve in hard places. Why didn't Jesus just take all the disciples up to heaven with him? Because he had a special purpose in mind. You see, they are in the world, and they would need to take Jesus' words to every end of the earth. Now, although this sounds straightforward, I think we tend to excuse ourselves from this kind of sacrifice. We become comfortable and we ignore the calling to go to hard places. And this doesn't just apply to uh, geographic locations. A hard place can be a difficult conversation that needs to be had. A hard place can be a change that needs to be made. A hard place is anything that forces us to confront the sin of this world, and choose obedience to Jesus rather than whatever feels best. This is already difficult enough on our own. Trust me, I know. But we're reminded in Jesus' prayer that there is also an enemy, the evil one, an adversary seeking to lie, cheat, and destroy you and everything you love. He intends to deceive us He tells you, don't change. Do whatever feels good. Whatever you can do to get your attention off of God and onto yourself, it's a great trick. But I don't see the need to spend too much time giving the devil much of my attention. And I don't mean any disrespect, but I hear people sometimes spend more time praying against Satan Than they do praying for the unsaved. We spend more energy worrying about spiritual warfare than we do spiritual righteousness. And let me show you why we don't have to live this way as Christians. First, we know that Jesus has already conquered Satan. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved his power is greater than the greatest power of evil. Satan is a defeated enemy. Dangerous, but defeated nonetheless. And second, right here we see the Son of God praying on our behalf. You cannot pray a hedge of protection more powerful than the Son of God praying to his Father to keep you from the evil one. I'm not saying that you have to change. I'm just saying this is... In Jesus, we have all the assurance that we need to know that God will keep you right where you need to be. We don't need to worry and be afraid of a defeated enemy. Jesus is the victor. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you benefit from Jesus's prayer. So where do we go from here? We've seen Jesus ask for God to keep us in his name, in relationship and allegiance to him. We understand the role of the Holy Spirit as a helper and a guide in our lives. We know the dangers and assurances of our calling to hard places. The next part in Jesus' prayer builds off everything that has come before. Our last point this morning, Jesus asks for the disciples' consecration. With prayer for the protection and provision of his disciples, Jesus moves to praying specifically For their sanctification. Or another way of saying that is Jesus is asking God to set these disciples apart for a specific purpose. With all that Jesus has prayed for them, it is only appropriate that these blessings provided for them are used for the expansion of God's kingdom. He says it right here in 17 Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we want to first unpack this idea of being consecrated, sanctified, made holy, made different, set apart. I love simple definitions, so let's understand consecrated or sanctified in this context as intended for God's divine purpose. Jesus did this, right? like He set himself apart to only do the will of God. He didn't come to earth just so he could walk on water. He didn't go to Jerusalem just to preach or go to Samaria just to heal. Jesus came to earth to be fully surrendered to the will of God. He wasn't set apart for any one single task. He was set apart for a relationship with God where he understood his role as fulfilling All that God asked of him. When I first started in ministry, people would often ask me about my calling. So that was like 12 years ago. Everyone always wanted to know what um, job or what kind of thing in ministry I felt God calling me to. And I kind of struggled with what to say, with how to respond. Even 12 years later, back in April of this year, I was asked by a bunch of different people at this church planter assessment I had to go to. They evaluated myself and Marianne as, uh, as a viable church planter. <laughs> and um, they wanted to know about my calling. And it just seemed like my answer never fit. My answer never seemed to be what people were looking for. Someone would say, hey, Scott, do you feel called to be a youth pastor? And I served as a youth pastor for almost six years. Um, and I'd say, well, no, not, not, not really do you feel called to be a church planter? And I was like, not exactly. Stay with me, stay with me. <laughs> um, you see, I didn't grow up in the church, and so I didn't really have any examples of, to follow other than my time in prayer with God and my study of his word. So I, I understood my relationship with God as one of control, trust, and love. Basically, I loved God so much that I trusted God to control my life. I wanted him to be fully in charge, and my opinion on the matter no longer counted for anything. That has, is what surrender has meant for me. So you wonder what I say to people when they ask me about my calling. I've always said, I feel like God has called me to a life of ministry in his church, and I've surrendered to do his will wherever and in whatever shape or form that looks like. The way that I got started was my pastor told me, he's like, hey, if you feel like God might be calling you to be a pastor, you need to get some education. So I went to seminary. That, that's what God wanted me to do. That led me to have to move to Colorado. So we moved to Colorado. And then there was a church, and I felt like God was like, hey, you need to be serving in this church. So we, we moved there. And all of my life in ministry has been asking God, what would you have me do next? Being concerned with what God is most concerned about. Nothing is off limits. We live in Pueblo now. We used to live in Highlands Ranch up in South Denver, um, and we sold our house and moved down here, and it's awesome. And I'm still trying to practice. Here's a fun, funny thing. Um, (laughs) When I first became a Christian, I was trying to practice surrendering to God. How do I surrender something I love to God? Like, I love it. (laughs) Why would I give it up? And so I used to be, like, somewhat addicted to um, Hot Cheetos, but, like, the lime ones, And I would go through like three bags a week, sometimes four bags a week, a bag a day if I was having a rough week. But my fingers were like permanently stained red. And um, I won't talk about everything else that happens. If you eat hot Cheetos, you know what I'm talking about. Burns going in. Well, I'll stop. And I was like, okay, God, you know what? I want to practice surrendering things I care about. I'm going to start small, but I do care about the, I love hot Cheetos. And so I was like, all right, God, I'll never eat hot Cheetos ever again unless you come down from heaven and tell me it's okay. And so I stopped eating hot Cheetos with lime. But I ate hot Cheetos without lime. I was like, all right. But I was like, ah, I feel like I'm kind of cheating the system there. So I stopped eating hot Cheetos in, in general, in total. Y'all, it's the silliest thing. But like, I got to pray up before I go to the grocery store. Because like, temptation comes heavy. I stay away from the chip aisle. I dart my eyes. I'm like, come on, Father, help me. It's a funny thing. This promise, this covenant I've made with God has taken something as silly as eating chips. And now I'll put my... Word on the line. God, I promise I will never do this again. I'll never eat these again. I've, <laughs> I've been tempted. I've had relatives who walk around, you want some? am like, ah! Get behind me, Satan! Oh, I didn't say that, but... I say that, and I, I say it with in, in good, in good energy because I hope you all practice these things. It is such a cool thing to see God's faithfulness and everything that you surrender to him. He returns far beyond our imaginations. When I surrendered to God, my my dating life, who I was going to marry, I upgraded big time. Like, no offense to everyone else I knew before I met Marianne and this family I've got. Man, God has given me so much, even through the hard times. Have you consecrated yourself to the will of God? Jesus is praying that you will. He's praying that you will consecrate yourself. Have you decided to make your life a life set apart from the world? Though you are still in the world, will you be surrendered to the will of God? To borrow an analogy from Adrian Rogers, if you go to your toolbox and you grab a tool, what is that tool intended to be committed to? Should the tool be committed to a task, or should that tool be committed to the carpenter? The tool is not to be committed to a task. The tool is to be committed to the carpenter, and the carpenter is committed to the task. We are like tools in the carpenter's hands. We are not committed to a task. We are committed to Jesus Christ. God is the carpenter. Be careful not to get these two confused. A Christian can achieve a lifetime of tasks, but miss the will of God along the way. We are committed to Jesus, not a task. You see, Abraham and Sarah made this mistake when they surrendered themselves to the task. Instead of surrendering to a person, God, they grew impatient, waiting on his promise that they would one day have a child. So they came up with their plan, and they succeeded in having a child through the help of a surrogate mother, Hagar. They brought in another woman. Abraham slept with her, and they had a son. They did what they knew they could do in the power of man. You see, the will of God has never been a series of steps or tasks or even like directions on a map that you need to take. The will of God is in the person of Jesus. Do you have Jesus? Are you in a relationship with Jesus right now? Because if you are, you can never be outside of God's will. And if you are not in a relationship with Jesus, you can never find God's will. Jesus came to earth and made himself fully available to God. Jesus' words in, in the same Gospel of John, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again in John 4, he says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Everything Jesus did was to be available to God, to hear from God, to be in constant communication and relationship. With God. Just consider the moment of this prayer. It's his last night before he's going to be crucified. He could do anything, he could heal thousands, he could preach a sermon that would just bring millions of people to faith. But his choice is to instead pray, to talk to his Father, to be in constant unity with God. Jesus is praying for you to be consecrated and set apart just like he was. It's right there in the verse. Jesus says, as he's praying, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You are sent by Jesus to be like Jesus, fully set apart for the will of God. I love this verse from Jeremiah. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. We're to be molded, shaped by God. And I can assure you he'll do a much better shaping us than we'll do shaping ourselves. I've tried. On the flip side, in Isaiah, woe to him who quarrels with his maker, one clay pot among many? Does the clay ask the potter, what are you making? I'd be like, oh, a talking pot! We don't have enough authority to speak back against God and question him. I know some things don't always make sense. There are hard, hard things. And I love that we serve a Jesus, a God, who knows that too he's experienced that too and look what he did as well on the eve of his crucifixion when Jesus understood the pain and sacrifice he was soon to endure he prayed these words it comes out of Matthew 26 then he said to them my soul is consumed with sorrow to the point of death stay here and keep watch for me with me going a little farther he fell. Face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, take this cup. Let it pass from me. Another passage in the Bible says that Jesus was almost like crying tears or sweating, sweating blood even. And here's what Jesus says in that same breath, Yet not as I will, but as you will. Who has Supreme authority in Jesus' life in that moment. It's God. And God knows that. Jesus knows that. So why would he say it? So his church could know that. So we could see this. This is a choice we have to make. Often daily, (laughs) we are to be sanctified in truth. That's verse 19. And good thing back in verse 17, we know what that means. To be sanctified in truth, verse 17 says, Jesus says, your word is truth. We're supposed to be sanctified in God's word. Through our time spent in God's word, we can learn more about how to set our lives apart and become sanctified, consecrated, to be just as available to God, just like Jesus was. People say, man, I wish I had an instruction book for life. But you got a good start with the Bible. It won't tell you how to bake a cake, but it'll get you to heaven a little bit better. Ask yourself right now, is there anything that you need to hand over to God? Ask God to reveal if there's any authority that you are still wielding, any area of your life, that you have not established the dominion of God? Does he have your full attention? Or do you have a few tasks on the side that you're in charge of? Hey, God, you do all that. I trust you for eternity. Now, how am I going to make this mortgage? (laughs) You trust him for eternity. You can trust him for tomorrow. If you sense in yourself that you've wrongly surrendered to a task instead of the person of Jesus, well, we can fix that right now. If you're a Christian, all that's as simple as spending the next moment in a prayer of repentance and seeking God, who is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins. If you're not a Christian and you sense that you want to surrender to the person of Jesus, not the tasks that have kept you burdened and weighed down, we can take care of that right now, too. You simply confess with your mouth and and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was resurrected and you can be saved. It starts really simple. This is God's will, Jesus. And Jesus' prayer for us, that we be consecrated, fully available. I can't remember the name of this pastor. I think it's D.L. Moody. He said, the world has yet to see a man or a woman fully consecrated to the will of God. Can you imagine? What's up, Billy Graham? You weren't fully consecrated to the will of God. What? And billions heard the gospel because of that man. And even he wasn't fully consecrated. Imagine if that person is in this room right now. Imagine if you're the person to tell that person about the gospel. What could God do with someone 100% surrendered, available to his will? man, I want to see it. I want to try and be it for my family, for the people who look at me. You have a lot of influence. Be available to God. Let this church, someone called it, I think someone called it a lighthouse earlier. Uh, Man, let it shine light into this community. Be so loud when you're singing that the neighbors call in noise complaints. Sorry, we love Jesus too much. We got to sing it loud. And do whatever it takes to see the kingdom of God come to earth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much.